In April 2019, a crack team of Teambridge District councillors declared a climate emergency and swore to be carbon neutral by 2025. As a result, Action on Climate Teambridge was formed by a group of local volunteers. Enlisting a team of wildlife wardens for help, they use their knowledge and expertise to support residents and councils across Teambridge to build climate-friendly communities and help wildlife to flourish. If you care about our natural world and want to help, you can find and you can support the ACT team. Hello and welcome to the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast hosted by me, Emily Marbay. In this episode, I'll be telling you all about a visit we had from our sponsors and I'll also be putting the spotlight on butterflies. It's the time of year again when we enjoy seeing them flitting around our gardens and public spaces. But what can we do to support their populations? I'll be talking with the Secretary of the Devon Branch of Butterfly Conservation, Amy Walkden, to find out more about that. I'll also be talking about wild camping, why it's a great way to experience nature while nurturing your soul, I'll go through what kit you need, how I went about my first wild camp, as well as where in Teambridge it's legal to get your bivvy out and hunker down for the night. And of course, I'll be bringing you additional news and updates from other wildlife wardens in the borough. I'll begin with the visit we had from our sponsors, Amy and Amanda, from the Devon Environment Foundation. They wanted to see what our wildlife wardens have been up to and find out more about the wonderful projects we have on the go. They visited Broad Hempston, where one of our wardens has facilitated the creation of a county wildlife site. This was achieved by sending records to the Devon Biodiversity Records Centre after discovering breeding great crested newts, as well as toads in a local pond. They also spoke about their toad patrols around the village and all the toads they've been saving at night, as well as a survey they've been doing of the local churchyard wildlife. In addition to this, in Broad Hempston, they have been working on a project to plant a new hedge on a local farmer's land. They have permission to do this and will be undertaking the project later in the year. In the college ward, Amy and Amanda visited Ogwell Cross Cemetery and met up with Chris Callard, the local wildlife warden there. He has been working on a project to plant a new hedgerow in the cemetery using native species, as well as creating a wildflower meadow. He has also organised the purchase of a bench so that people can have a seat and enjoy the wildlife while visiting the cemetery. There may also be potential for Teambridge District Council to use this site for green burials in the future. More on that as it develops. In Ogwell, they made a visit to the Rectory Field site, which you may recall me talking about in the last episode of the podcast. Now, there's an open day at this site coming up soon, so I'll be talking about this one a little bit later on in the podcast as well. Over in Holcombe, which falls under the Dawlish Parish, there's a little piece of council-owned land which has fallen into disuse. Clive, our wildlife warden there, explained to our sponsors how he is attempting to get this turned over as a site for wildlife. Currently, it has been earmarked as a place to dump spoil during the creation of a new cycle path, but there may be potential to get this converted into a local nature reserve in the future. 
They have also been looking at the marine environment and how some recent dredging work may be affecting water quality and wildlife. Over in Chudley, our sponsors enjoyed taking a look at Chudley Wild's wildlife verges. The yellow rattle there is coming along nicely and gradually outcompeting the grasses that usually dominate the sites. Amy and Amanda also visited an open green space in the village which Chudley Wild have recently taken over the management of. They want to make the space both wildlife friendly but also usable to the public during the winter months when it is usually a bit flooded. More on that as their plans develop. And finally in Chudley, they were able to showcase their award-winning bat garden as well as the Devon Wildlife Trust bat fields that Chudley Wild are currently responsible for managing. And finally in Trustham, our sponsors visited a meadow and orchard owned by one of our wildlife wardens. They saw a cyril bunting, and while on this site, there was a discussion about upcoming training, which hopes to equip Teambridge Wildlife Wardens with the skills to respond to planning applications, an important and growing issue in ecology. It was a really busy day all round, and credit really must go to Flavio and Audrey for keeping everyone organised and on time. Not an easy task, but one they did a fantastic job of. So well done, Flavio and Audrey. Big shout out for you. Next, I'd like to talk a bit about wild camping. This was something I had always wanted to try, but never had the courage to go for, until now. There is something really quite special about immersing yourself in the natural environment that really, really appeals to me. So, I got some kit together and put it to the test for the first time during the summer half-term break. It was a fantastic experience and one which I wanted to share in case you'd like to try it too. Dartmoor is the only place you can legally wild camp in the UK and there is a camping map available to show you the areas you can use. Now, it is really important to check this map before you think about going because there are privately owned spaces as well as areas undergoing ecological regeneration that you need to avoid. After consulting the wild camping map, which I'll include a link to in the episode notes, you should also check the Dartmoor firing times. This is because Dartmoor is one of the locations where our armed forces train, and as such, there are places where shooting takes place, which are also accessible for wild camping, and we wouldn't want you to get shot. I'll include a link to the firing times, just make sure you don't forget this step in the excitement of getting out into the wilds of the moors. In terms of kit... If you want to try it out for yourself, there is a basic list of things you are going to need if you want to go wild camping. This includes, but is certainly not limited to, a tent or bivy bag. Now, I went for a tent for the additional feeling of security, but a lot of people really enjoy bivy bags too. You need a sleeping pad, and many people also use a reflective mat as a thermal insulator against the ground as well. You will need a suitable sleeping bag. Remember that it can feel cold on the moors at night, even on a sunny day. So make sure you get a bag with the appropriate thermal rating. For water, carry one to two litres, ideally spread between more than one vessel for the sake of safety, and make sure you have a filter. This will serve you in an emergency and for topping up. The standard is something like the Sawyer, which is lightweight, cheap, 
indestructible and many outdoorsy types swear by. I actually take mine even for day trips with my young son on the moor and I'm glad I do. Last weekend we went for a walk in the summer sun and he dropped his water bottle, losing most of its contents. Luckily we were by Venford Brook and had the filter, so we were easily able to filter and refill his bottle. Some people will argue that you should also boil the water, but many wild campers I speak to say they never do. It's only to destroy protozoa that might potentially get through the filter. But if you collect from clean, fast-flowing water, you are unlikely to have a problem. Many told me that they don't even use a filter. They just drink the lovely water straight from the upper reaches of Dartmoor rivers and springs. Although that is a step too far for me, especially when giving the water to my child. For cooking, you'll need a simple, lightweight gas or meth stove. I initially tried using a flat pack wood burning stove, but as campfires are not allowed on Dartmoor, I spoke to other experienced wild campers and they said best not to use it because a single stray ember in the heat of summer and you could be responsible for a big blaze. Now, I don't need to carry that kind of guilt around with me. I have enough trouble with my pack, so I've changed it up for a meth burner now. Then there are a few other safety items to consider. A first aid kit, map, compass, emergency blanket, torch, whistle. And incidentally, if you do carry a whistle, make sure you take the time to look up how to send out a distress signal. Otherwise, you could be blowing away for hours and getting nowhere. Story of my life. And of course, your toiletries, food and eating implements, plus waterproofs, a change of clothes, a towel and some sanitizer or soap to keep yourself and your kit nice and clean. And last but not least, it's the thing nobody wants to talk about. Poo! Don't forget a bit of good old loo roll, and if you plan to carry your leavings back, some Ziploc bags are pretty handy, or if you plan on burying rather than carrying, you'll need a little trowel. But make sure you read up on how and where to do it if you plan to bury, because there are certain codes of conduct you should be aware of, which I don't feel the need to go into here. Anyway, that's enough about Kit. The whole script will be on the blog that accompanies the podcast, so if you want to refer back to it, you can always do so there. And feel free to get in touch if you think I've missed any crucial items. Now, as this was my first time wild camping, and I am not the strongest navigator, I decided to head to an area I knew, and I chose a spot not too far from Avon Dam. I knew I could park there easily, that there's extensive wild camping places available, there are toilets and refreshments van in the car park there, and as such I wouldn't be too far from basic amenities if I decided to bottle it and turn back, or if I had an emergency. I had checked the wild camping map and identified areas where I was allowed to pitch up near to a water source, and I decided that Barla Brook was the way to go for my maiden voyage. Now, I do appreciate that that's not in Teambridge, so to make up for that fact, I'll be covering some of the wild camping spots that you can get to within the borough a bit later on. I checked the weather and I went for two days scheduled to be fine with virtually no chance of rain. Now, I should point out that even if you do this, you should still have boots and waterproofs because conditions on Dartmoor are known to change very quickly and without warning so being prepared is crucial. I headed off about 2.30 in the afternoon and was at the Shippy Bridge car park by about 3.30. 
Now, Avon Dam is a particularly popular spot, and there were lots of cars there, but I knew I'd be heading in a different direction to most of the other day trippers. I was looking for isolation, not the usual tourist spots. I got my map and compass out, I took a bearing to the spot I was heading for, and I made sure I knew which direction I'd need to go to to find it, and I also needed to make sure I'd be able to find my way back the next day. At this point, I should probably be honest and say that the track I thought I had identified as a way to get up and out of the car park and onto the open moorland turned out to be a sheep trail through gorse bushes, and before I'd even left the site of the car park behind, I had managed to get myself stuck in a bush, fallen over, and managed to get about a dozen gorse splinters in my right hand, which really wasn't a great start. I had just scrambled up a steep hill with my pack, I was sweating in the afternoon sun, and wondering if this really was such a great idea after all. But I'm a pretty stubborn person, and people who know me know that I don't give up easily. So I took a break, had a drink, I picked out as many splinters as I could, and then I carried on. Now, I do consider myself to be a relatively fit and healthy person, but boy does that change when you're carrying 12 kilos on your back and going over uneven terrain up a steep hill. I had to stop every couple of hundred metres to catch my breath and have a drink. Thank goodness I had decided on a spot only a couple of kilometres from the car park. I don't think I could have managed more on my maiden voyage. I pressed on, up and over Zeal Hill, and headed down towards Barla Brook. I could make out the path it takes flowing down from higher ground to the north, cutting a V into the moor and edged by trees, so I knew I was going in the right direction. As the water came into view, I can't tell you how happy I felt to see soft, tussocky grass and easy access to the brook. Having never been to this particular spot before, I really had no idea if this was going to be the case, but it was exactly what I'd hoped for. I tracked along upstream, and then I found a lovely level spot, close to the water and under a tree, behind a ridge. Perfect. I'd be hidden from sight and tucked away nicely should anyone pass by. I had picked myself up a can of drink from the refreshments van in the car park and told myself this was going to be my treat for making it there and getting set up. So I popped it in the stream to keep cool and went about putting my tent up. It went surprisingly easily and before I knew it I'd stripped off, had a quick skinny dip to cool down and was enjoying my nice cold can of drink. Well, there was no one else around so I figured why not. Break over, my next priority was making sure I had enough water. So I went about collecting some from the stream, filtering it, and for added safety, I had my stove with me, so thought I might as well boil it. Water sorted, next up was dinner. By now it was about half past five and I was hungry. I bought some dehydrated pasta and sauce packets, as well as some jerky for a kick of protein, so these were duly prepared and then eaten while sitting and taking in my surroundings in a bit more detail. I could hear cuckoos up and downstream, blackbirds and wrens aplenty, buzzards flew overhead and sheep grazed peacefully, but at a comfortable distance. This was what I had come for, total submersion in nature. After dinner, I took my camera and headed upstream to further explore my surroundings, there was wilder water upstream and the sound of small waterfalls rushing, so off I went to find them. As I rounded a bend in the river, 
I discovered marshy ground underfoot, the water running off from further uphill finding its way to the brook. Huge tussocks of grass looked like boulders in an alien landscape with the low-setting sun behind them, and I decided it was time to get back to camp before sunset. Nobody wants to be lost on the moor in the dark. Despite my camp being only a short distance away and me taking stock of the location before heading out, I still managed to walk straight past it. Easily done when your tent is small and green and hidden in a green valley under a tree. A sickly feeling rose and I thought, no, not me, how could I have lost my camp so easily? But I soon realised I'd gone a bit too far and after turning round and heading back, I spotted it just ahead. Phew. Next time, I think I'll take a red ribbon and tie it to the nearest tree on the track so I don't have that mild panic moment again. I boiled up some more water, made myself a hot chocolate, added a sneaky little shot of something for extra warmth, and sat to watch the setting sun. Lovely. As I drank it, I saw dippers and wagtails enjoying the stream below me. It really was a, such a wonderful way to experience some of the nature of Dartmoor. I thought I'd feel too isolated at night and I might struggle to sleep, but I actually slept really well, albeit with the odd waking in pain because my sleeping mat was a bit rubbish. Not an item to go cheap on, I now discover. Now, I don't have the best shoulders anyway, and after carrying my pack, they were sore, so then sleeping on them, I realised my error, and I've now ordered a better sleeping mat for my next trip. Every day is a school day. The next morning, I woke with the sun, and I thought I'd get up, relieve myself, and take stock. As I unzipped the tent, away flew two heron. They'd been having a morning drink and a bathe right next to my tent, and my noise in getting up had startled them away. Damn, note to self, be more stealthy next time. After getting myself dressed, fed and watered, I took half an hour to meditate, and then pack up my stuff, ready to return to reality. My car was roughly due west of where I'd camped, so I headed out in that direction, back up and over Zeal Hill. Only this time, I found the dismantled tramway that I had hoped to find on my way up, but had obviously missed. So following the remains of Zeal Tor Tramway, I was led to a metalled road, which I assumed was the service road for the Avon Dam filtration station. So to make my return trip a bit easier underfoot, I decided to follow this back instead of cutting my own route. I'm really glad I did. The path was an easy gradient and led me straight down onto the main Avon Dam access road. Kind of wish I'd just taken this route in the first place, but hey, it wouldn't have been as much of an adventure if I hadn't filled my hand with gorse splinters on the way there. Turning right at the junction, I was soon just a few hundred metres from the car park and civilization again. Success! I had made it and completed my first wild camping trip. I returned home shattered, but at peace and already thinking about planning my next adventure. And this time, I'm thinking I should give my home county of Teambridge a try. Some great spots where wild camping is allowed include Buckland Common, Blackslade Down, a small area around Saddle Tour, which is just west from Haytor Rocks, and a popular beauty spot with our family. You can also pitch up at Trendlebeer Down, Lusley Cleave, Hamel Down, and Chagford Common. But again, 
please do check the maps first because these are patchy areas and you need to make sure you're in the right place. And if you are thinking about going wild camping, remember that you should always make sure you plan well in advance and don't exceed your ability. Make sure you point out on a map where you plan to camp to someone else and let them know when you expect to be home so they can raise the alarm if the worst happens. Once you're on the moors, you're likely to have no mobile signal, so do not rely on this for maps or getting help as you are unlikely to get it. And remember, leave no trace. You should not be having a campfire or barbecue on Dartmoor because wildfires can start easily, especially in the heat of summer. And you should be taking all rubbish home with you. Large tents or groups of people go against the wild camping guidelines. So keep it low key to get the best out of the experience and to make sure that the law stays in place to allow us to camp here for many years to come. It's an amazing way to experience our natural environment and remember just how wonderful Mother Nature really is and how insignificant our day-to-day -day problems are. For me personally, well, I went out feeling fed up, stressed and anxious, but I came home feeling a real sense of achievement, wonder and relaxation. I'll definitely be looking to do this again and soon. Anyway, enough about me and my wild camping trip. Let's move on to butterflies. Devon has about 39 species of resident butterfly. These include the wood white, silver studded blue, white admiral, brown argus, small blue and brown hair streak. Now, as podcasts don't make for the best platform for showing you what these bad boys look like, I'll include a link in the episode notes so you can see some pictures and keep an eye out for these species yourself while out and about in your garden or countryside. The organisation Butterfly Conservation also has a brilliant page telling you all about the best places to see many of Devon's butterflies, so I'll reference that in the episode notes as well. One of these sites is Orley Common, just up the road from me, in Ipplepen. There you can see the brown hair streak and brown argus, but there are lots of other sites and lots of other butterflies to be seen. Too many to list here, so do take a look at their website. And... As with pretty much all species, we need to look after our butterflies. Around three quarters of butterfly species in the UK are in decline, which is a worrying thought. There are several organisations undertaking conservation projects for our little flying beauties. In the southwest, one of the biggest was the All the More Butterflies project, which ran over three years and improved habitat conditions and raised awareness of six of our most threatened butterfly and moth species on Exmoor, Dartmoor and Bodmin Moor. The project worked with 146 landowners across 201 sites to deliver gains for these special species. Over 5,000 people learnt about the fascinating lives of these wonderful insects and were given opportunities to contribute to their conservation. There is a fabulous YouTube video all about this project, which I'll add a link to in the episode notes. But I'm no expert on butterflies. All the facts stated here so far are poached directly from the organisation Butterfly Conservation, and I am fortunate enough to be friends with the secretary of the Devon branch. Her name's Amy, so here she is having a chat with me in my garden about our lovely winged friends. As usual, Please excuse the sound quality as it was recorded outside. 
Hi, Amy. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? Hello. Thank you for asking me. Um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's a lovely hot day. It's very nice to be here in your garden. It is. It's lovely. And I apologise in advance if we hear any golfers on the course <laughs> behind us. Hopefully they'll be nice and quiet for us today. Um, so we're talking about butterflies this week or this month on the podcast. And um, I wondered if you'd just start off really by talking about why butterflies um, are important to you, you know, why are you interested in them, and how have you been involved in butterfly conservation? Right, well, um, I guess uh, butterflies are sort of part of my general interest of, of wildlife and conservation. Um, it's not by any means my job, I'm actually a nurse, but so it's a, I just find um, wildlife and interest in it um, a very good way to relax, and I think it's also really good. I'm actually a mental health nurse, and I think observing nature and being around it is hugely important and really good for people's mental health so yeah it just ties in nicely really with the day job (laughs) I think that's wonderful and I couldn't agree more so obviously you've been out and about doing projects and helping conserve butterflies what kind of work actually happens on a day when you go out into the field to help with butterfly conservation? What do you get up to? Are you mainly kind of cutting things back or are yeah, you yeah. planting things <laughs> or are you... Um, I haven't actually been involved with doing any planting, um, but it is rather like gardening on a grand scale at times. I mean, you can go to you know in the winter to work parties to try and remove some vegetation or um, plant or invasive species that are... Um, in the way of of the food plant of butterfly and caterpillars and larvae and uh so there's that's a bit, that can be a big part of it but during the summer months like now um it's about counting butterflies doing surveys transects sometimes counting caterpillars in the spring as well seeing how many in one area mm-hmm. but a lot of it is habitat management um and what's wonderful about going to these sort of working parties is they're usually really quite educational there's people there i mean i'm not by any means particularly knowledgeable about butterflies I just am involved with them and I'm learning all the time and you do tend to meet up with these incredible people who have um, you know very wide and varied backgrounds in in butterflies so you you inevitably learn learn quite a lot when you go along to them Um, but yeah you're you're just the work that you do is is hugely important I mean there was work undertaken on the large blue butterfly that pretty much brought it back from extinction in the country Mm. so you know all the bits that you get involved in do do make a big difference even if it just means an afternoon of slogging and getting prickled by thorns yeah if it's anything like (laughs) when I'm doing gardening it's just constant stings and prickles um I mean, obviously, going out and doing these kinds of things on site might be a stretch too far for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, if you're a common old garden family with a, with a small garden, w- what sort of thing can they do to get involved and to help butterflies? Yeah, absolutely. There's loads of things that you can do. I mean, I'm going to fly definitely fly the flag for joining Butterfly Conservation, which is the, our charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, run the big butterfly count that's really a massive piece of citizen science that a lot of people are involved in. You know, a lot of people here with the big garden bird watch and this is you know this is the next one really um the summer one so you know you can do um do that you can join the charity and if you did join as a member then you get uh automatically joined to the branch of that you live in so for example in devon um you then receive newsletters and information about what's going on in your area um and either you can join a work party or you can just go along to an event where there might be a walk where you can learn a bit um but on a smaller scale you, you know gardening as well how you garden what you put in your garden mm-hmm. 
or even if you don't have a garden, just doing some pots or window boxes can encourage butterflies and help them. The other things you could do is you could find out what's happening in your area in terms of your local authority. Often there are woodlands and um, parks and reserves open. Um, you can go and watch butterflies there. Joining any sort of group really and having a bit of action with trying to encourage your council to not cut the verges back so much and just more sort of gentle way of approaching gardening and not seeing every weed as a threat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, is it, how important is it for people to look for sort of native species when they're putting plants in their garden? Um, so does it matter what kind of plants people are choosing? Um, I think, you know, having any sort of nectar-rich plants in your garden is great but if you actually want to help butterflies more then have planting native species is the best because that's what the larvae and the caterpillars eat off of course and you've got to go right back to you know where where the butterflies lay their eggs where mm-hmm. they hatch what they're going to eat so leaving nettles and dock and um, plants that people would normally want to remove is is hugely important or at least if you don't want them in your garden then just you know not being too worried when you see it in other places because it's all all helping yeah yeah I mean if someone was going to leave say nettles because I know that's a really valuable plant for butterflies is that something would they need to just leave them all year round or can they leave them for a certain amount of time and then cut them back or would it just literally be a case of just leave a little patch of nettles leave it be because if they are gonna lay eggs I'm guessing those eggs need the plants to yes, continue. that's it. And, and remember, it's not just butterflies. It's obviously moths who also do a hugely important job of pollinating. Um, I mean, bees and butterflies are sort of the ones that we tend to see. They're very often very brightly coloured and, you know, people like to have that sort of hum and buzz and flutter when they're sitting in their garden. Mm-hmm. But I'm just as passionate about moths as I am butterflies. And, um, and yeah, they, you know, a lot of them have to bury their the larvae and bur- burrow down underneath their food plants as well. So best to leave it just create a little wild space and let it do its own thing and the things that turn up the ragworts the dock the you know um and the nettles is are really important to leave and violets as well violets are a good food plant for the fritillary butterflies i wasn't as familiar with violets that's good um yeah well that that kind of led me quite nicely really onto my next question which was going to be you know why butterflies are actually important um i know they're lovely to look at and we all enjoy butterflies but you mentioned that they're important pollinators so it's not just about having a pretty insect to look at absolutely no they're they're, i mean the butterflies are, are very sensitive indicators of the health of our environment and um and unfortunately you know human activities are destroying much of the natural natural world now we're just not they haven't got as much habitat there's just too much building and infrastructure and things are being cleared away and tidied up so they are hugely important for pollinating and obviously they're the part of the food chain you know without without them then we wouldn't have the things that eat them without them we wouldn't have the things that eat them and what kinds of things are eating butterflies i'm interested well you'd bats maybe you know because they come out at night butterflies are more of a daytime thing i think yeah i think birds Birds, um, yeah yeah, I mean, they can get trapped in webs as well. I mean, I'd have to look that one up. Mm. Yeah, I'm no, really I'm, sure. I'm sure there's probably quite a few things that would like to munch on a butterfly if they got their <laughs> they jaws around them, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what else would you like to promote or talk about while you've got the attention of our listeners? Uh, well, um, obviously, Butterfly Conservation is a great website to go to, even if you're not a member. It just gives you loads of information there about species and things that you can see. And then coming up in July and August, there's the Big Butterfly Count. Um, that runs from the 16th to the 8th of August, and it's a great activity to do with children or family or even on your own 
just take a small walk around a parkland or garden, mm-hmm. see what there is, and um, there's a they there's guides on the website that you can print or download. Yeah, I was going to say. I know when I tried to do it last year, I found it really hard because <laughs> my my ability to identify butterflies is pretty limited, um, like you know, red admiral that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and so I kind of think, oh, I don't want to record the wrong thing, so therefore I just won't get involved. Um, but that's possibly the wrong mindset Absolutely, to have around it. Absolutely, just give it a go, you know, because every bit of information you put in there is is huge, is so important. And there's also an app which makes it really easy as well that you can just do as you're walking along and pop it in. And, um, yeah, just, just going back to the gardening, really, there's also um, a, a lovely guide, a free downloadable guide called Nurture for Nature on there, which is um, a gardening guide that will give you um, more specific lists of things that you can plant that will actively encourage butterflies and it's part of a sort of wellness guide as well so going full circle back to looking after our mental health and it's you know in have a have a good poke around is maybe my advice and you know if you if you would like to join it's um really super charity to get involved with so yeah lovely <laughs> Fabulous. Well, hopefully people will. I, I think I will make more of an effort this year to get involved with the Big Butterfly Count and I'll try and increase my knowledge and ability to identify. I mean, when you do it, do you find that you're seeing mainly the same kind of species over and over anyway? So is it a case of really learning to recognise a fairly small number that will be in your local area? Um, yes, I think so. And um, the good thing about doing the Big Butterfly Count is that they're not looking for that sort of expert knowledge of all these, you know, more rarely seen butterflies Mm -hmm. it's you know the most common ones because Mm -hmm. that in itself even if you just see them is enough of an indicator of what's happening in a local area yeah and um so you know you needn't feel intimidated if you you know just see something and it looks a bit brown and it might not be on the list anyway they tend to tend to put the most visible ones on that list okay yeah but i think often you know in your own garden you might see so just maybe two or three different types everybody knows the the cabbage whites and the peacock butterflies and and um red admirals but you know occasionally an odd thing comes along take a picture of it you know try and figure out what it is getting yourself a good field guide is a lovely thing to do yep figure out what it is there aren't that many butterflies in the uk so um you know there's a good chance that it'll be one of the ones you've got there in front of you don't, go, don't identify some amazonian species by accident. <laughs> no, no. oh a little wren there having joined being in enjoyed by uh, being joined by a wren today that's nice um i think Oh, <laughs> we'll let it have its say again. Um, so I think unless there's anything else that you want to mention while you've got us, um, we can probably leave it there. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll just give a little plug again, butterflyconservation.org. Yeah, um, and I'll make sure I include links to the other things yeah. you mentioned. Um, I mean, I know I use the Seek app for identifying other bits and pieces, and um, that might be useful for butterflies as well. Definitely. The apps are getting so sophisticated now. If you're in an, ever sure, if you manage to get a snap of it, you can, you can use these mm. fabulous, sometimes free apps to work out what you're looking at brilliant yeah well, we'll make sure we include links to that the butterfly conservation the big butterfly count and the other bits and pieces you've mentioned there so that if anyone wants to get involved they can and um, if anyone has anything to contribute about butterflies then we would love to hear from you as well <laughs> thanks for your time today amy thanks for having me huge thanks again to amy for taking the time out of her schedule to talk to me for the podcast I'll include links to the Big Butterfly Count and other resources she has mentioned here in the episode notes, as usual. Next, I want to tell you all about an upcoming event that you might like to come to. Remember earlier, 
and in the last episode I mentioned the rectory field site in Ogwell and all the plans our Ogwild friends have for this five-acre woodland trust site? Well, they have been mega busy and have already installed the bike rack I mentioned in the last episode. They have also established new paths and managed some of the bramble growth. There's now a bench as well as log seating available. The entrance has been improved to reduce mud during the winter months and reptile mats as well as a wildlife camera have been installed and already have caught footage of a fox. They are having an open day on Saturday the 10th of July from 2pm until 6pm. So get that date in your diary. It is going to be a brilliant opportunity to see the site in person as well as meeting other wildlife wardens from parishes and wards in Teambridge. Coffee, cake and ice cream will be provided by the village partner, the Wildflower Bakery. There'll be a chance to study and comment on the plans they're coming up with for the site, as well as taking part in wildlife activities for all ages. You are welcome to bring family and friends to enjoy the space and can have a picnic if you wish to. You can also show off your photography skills by entering their simple competition for a credit and presence on their new website. There's going to be an opportunity to buy a family memorial tree for planting in late autumn, as well as a plant swap. So if you have an abundance of seedlings or small plants and would like to bring a few for that, you'd be very welcome to. The site can be found by putting in the postcode TQ126AH into your satnav and there's parking available nearby. We hope to see you there. And finally, to round off this episode, I want to let you know that the Devon Bat Survey is back. It's a popular citizen science project that you may well want to get involved with. This Devon-wide project will be continued this year, looking at bats in the Save Devon's Trees core areas. You simply collect a high-end bat detector, put it up for a few nights, then take it down and send in the memory card for analysis. A report of the results is sent to you later in the year to show what is recorded, and it's a brilliant survey which gives excellent results which contribute to a huge Devon-wide data set about our bat populations. So it's well worth getting involved with. It's a brilliant survey which gives excellent results which contribute to a huge Devon-wide data set about our bat populations. So it really is well worth getting involved with. As usual, I'll include a link in the episode notes if you're interested, and I think I will definitely be taking part in this one. So I will let you know how that goes. That's about it for this episode of the Devon Wildlife Warden podcast. Although there was so much more I could have talked about this month, I think I need to save it for later, or this episode will be about two hours long. So for now, farewell, and I hope you feel inspired to do something, however small, for your local wildlife. This podcast was narrated and produced by me, Emily Marbay, with music by Upbeat Whistle.